You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writer's Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Natasha Dion, and I wrote a novel called Grace. Natasha Dion is an NAACP Image Award nominee and a 2017 American Library Association's Black Caucus Award winner for Best Debut Fiction for her novel Grace, which was also named a New York Times Top Book and a Kirkus Review Best Books of the Year. Natasha is a Pamela Krasny Moral Courage Fellow and a recipient of a Pan America Emerging Voices Fellowship, and she has been awarded fellowships and residencies at Yale, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Prague's Creative Writing Program, Dickinson House in Belgium, and the Virginia Center for Creative Arts. In 2017, Natasha was a U.S. delegate to Armenia as part of the U.S. Embassy's Reconciliation Project between Turkey and Armenia in partnership with the University of Iowa's International Writing Program. She holds an MFA in Creative Writing from the University of California Riverside, Palm Desert. A practicing criminal attorney, law professor, and UCLA Extension instructor, she is the mother of two, and is the creator of the popular LA-based reading series, Dirty Laundry Lit and The Table. Grace is a sweeping intergenerational saga featuring a group of outcast women during one of the most compelling eras in American history. For a runaway slave in the 1840s South, life on the run can be just as dangerous as life under a sadistic master. That's what 15-year-old Naomi learns after she escapes the brutal confines of life on an Alabama plantation and takes refuge in a Georgia brothel run by a gun-toting Jewish madam named Cynthia. Amidst a revolving door of gamblers and prostitutes, Naomi falls in a love affair with a smooth-talking white man named Jeremy. The product of their union is Josie, whose white skin and blonde hair mark her as different from the others on the plantation. Having been taken in as an infant by a free slave named Charles, Josie has never known her mother, who was murdered at her birth. Josie soon becomes caught in the tide of history when news of the Emancipation Proclamation reaches her and a day of supposed freedom turns into one of unfathomable violence that will define Josie and her lost mother for years to come. The idea for Grace came from, I think it was a daydream. Um, And I say I think it was because I don't really know how to describe what it was that happened. I was walking down the hallway. I feel like I've told this story a million times and I feel crazy every time I tell it, but it was what it was. So I was walking down the hallway and it was like 10 in the morning. It was like a great sleep and the sun was coming in the window and then all of a sudden it was nighttime. And I was in the woods in this place that I used to go to in Alabama when I was younger because my family is from Alabama. So I recognized the place immediately. I remember the moon was in the sky and it was really bright. It was a full moon and there was a girl and she was running. And at that time, I wasn't afraid because I thought, I know I'm standing in my hallway, but this is just a dream. And maybe I didn't really get up this morning. Maybe I'm still in bed, still having this dream. So I wasn't like afraid as I maybe should have been, but I wasn't. And the girl, she had on this yellow dress, and it had blood on it. And it was like brown blood, and she was running, and she was pregnant. And there was this scene that just sort of unfolded in front of my eyes, and I was horrified. Um, And then it ended, and it was daytime, and I'm standing in my hallway, and I'm holding my son. 
And at the time, people will ask me when I travel, you know, like, what was that? Was it a vision? Was it a dream? And I have no language for it. So I'm not one of those people that think, oh, these visions appear to me. I was just, I I can't describe what happened. And people will tell me, oh, it was a visitation or it was, but I, I don't know what it was. I just know what I saw. And so after it happened, I remember taking my son to my husband and saying, hold him, I need to write down what I just saw. And I didn't know what it was. So I took that scrap of paper, put it in a drawer, and I didn't know what I would do with it. Six months later, um, a friend of mine died, who is actually one of the characters of the novel, who's based on one of the characters, a character named Cynthia. And when she died, I knew that I had to write it. And because I didn't know how to write a novel, I wrote it first as a screenplay. And then I was like, okay, I got it. And I sent it around, you know, when it was finished. The rest of the novel, the screenplay did not come like that vision. I had to work at it. But it started winning awards. Charleston, the La Femme, you know, all these things. It was like eight of them. And after the Beverly Hills Film Festival, when I won for Best Screenplay, a producer came up and was like, I want to see this screenplay. And then they wanted to produce it. They wanted to option it. And I remember being in this meeting that I probably, they should have never invited the writer, but I was sitting there in this meeting, listening to them talk about the story, hear them talk about Cynthia and this woman who I saw. And I'm like, no, that's not how the story goes. That is not how it goes at all. And I realized then that I needed to write the story. So I was looking around, trying to figure out what to do. And I saw the UCLA Writers Program. And they had a class called Novel Writing One, How to Write a Novel. So I enrolled, and I was a student. Hello, I'm Natasha. I have this weird idea. I tried to write a screenplay. I thought I could just copy and paste it onto a Word document, and it would be a novel, but it's not. And so I want to learn how to write a novel. So that was how Grace came about. My process of writing the book when I first started, besides taking the classes and then trying to respond to every writing assignment, because I was working full time at the time, um, and my son, so it turned out that he had this diagnosis called SSADH. He was the first and the youngest diagnosed patient with that condition, and it was basically he had this, they found out that his brain couldn't get rid of a certain chemical called GABA, which is what occurs in everybody's brain naturally. So it's like the the date rape drug, Ruhypnol, that same sort of thing that puts people to sleep and makes them forget he keeps in his brain. So it keeps him from, you know, walking or talking. So he walked when he was four for the first time. He ran when he was six. He's 12 now, and he speaks about 20 words. So during that time, we were going to a lot of therapies, occupational therapy, physical therapy, and I'm in this class. And it was perfect because it was online. So I could just check in when I could, you know, do the exercises while I'm waiting at doctor's appointments. So that's how I wrote it, sort of in between things on the notes app on my phone. You know, you get an idea, you write it down, and then the therapist comes, and then they're in the room for an hour, and then I'm, or 30 minutes, and then I'm writing, or I'm traveling. Um, So that's how I kind of wrote things, and that was my process. So it wasn't really a process where people say, oh, I had a writer's room, and I went to a retreat. It was not that convenient. (laughs) And then I had to go back to work. So it was writing at lunch, you know, in my car, and trying to figure it out. Because really, when you're a mom of any any kind, or you're working full time, or whatever, you know, everything intrudes on your writing time. So it's really when you're a working writer, you're writing in the margins of your life. 
And you have to accept that, that you're not going to be, your life doesn't look like everyone else's. It's not convenient. It's just what it is. And it was important enough for me because of the way the story came to me. I felt like I had to deliver it, you know, across some imaginary finish line. And I just wanted to keep walking it out. So that after novel writing one, I took novel writing two. And then in novel writing two, I met Robert Evers, who was a great professor, who said, Natasha, you know, I think your work is of the quality and you should apply for Emerging Voices Fellowship through PEN America. So I was like, okay, what is that? Do you mean there's a writing community? There's a world? There's people who just do this? This is, <laughs> this is real? <laughs> so I applied for it and I got it. And then the rest was sort of history. I finished the novel. I got an MFA at UC Riverside Palm Desert. Um, and now I teach at UCLA Extension, which is full circle. So my mentor at PEN America as an Emerging Voices Fellow was Shilpa Argawal. We worked together by first I sent her my entire novel, which, you know, the parts that weren't workshopped in novel one through three, you know, were still in that screenplay format. So I had a great, you know, 50, 100 pages of a 400-page novel. So I sent her everything as is. She just requested it. And it was an interesting process. You know, some of it was disheartening because it's hard for a mentor to know always where to meet a writer. And it's hard for a writer who doesn't know to ask the right questions. So really trying to meet people or writers where they are so you don't discourage them and you encourage them at the same time. And I try to bring that principle even as I mentor now, like meeting them where they are. They said there's three versions of every story. The one you think you wrote, the one you actually wrote, (laughs) the one that readers read, and then what, and then whatever else it becomes. So really, for me, when I have a mentor, I try to say, what is it that you think you wrote? You know, let's talk about that. Because then you know how to talk to them. It sets sort of the conversation and expectations. So you're not just, you know, hitting them somewhere they didn't even know they had a problem. And, you're like, and then it's discouraging. Because writers, you know, we're sensitive. We have fragile egos. You know, let's be real. So, <laughs> so really just trying to cater to that and just encourage them say you know you go girl you know go guy you go you know whoever you know so we can encourage each other and then you have to have that conversation about okay here's the story we wrote I know you wanted to do this thing with your setting but it's not there yet so let's here's some techniques on how to do that and sometimes you're not gonna at the end of the 50 page have that solid piece that you had hoped for but my goal as a mentor or a teacher is to get them as far as possible as they can, push them a little bit more, a little bit more. So I'm not the laid back teacher because I think it can hurt some a, a writer too if they're just encouraged doing the wrong thing. Um, and you need someone to push you. At least that's my, that's what I'll tell my class. If you're not here to be pushed, I'm not the right teacher. And it makes me think of this. There's a, um, where I live, there are t- there are these personal trainers. Like everybody in my city, they're a personal trainer or they're a realtor. It's just how it is. <laughs> so it's the personal trainers. There's this one place that I go, and it's like this little cardio workout place, you know, and you get, you know, things to do. Like you do 10 of this or one minute of this, one minute of that. And it's hard, but, you know, like I still can't lift the bar. You know that bar, the long bar where they put 
um, weights on the end. I still can't lift the bar. I think it's like 25 pounds or something. I'm still struggling with that. But they don't bother me. They're just like, okay, good try. Go to the next one, you know, and I still have no upper body strength. So, <laughs> and it's been two years. So, <laughs> but there's another guy who is down the street. Those people wear like the gas mask. They run down the street. You know, they have plastic bags on their bodies. And you're like, oh my God, I'm glad I'm not in that with that trainer. And it's crazy, but they're working hard. And then they end up losing like 100 pounds. They're all super fit. And they have like prizes where you can win like tens of thousands of dollars if you lose the most weight and get the most fit, zero body fat. But they're like doing something there. So my class, when I teach, is somewhere between that. (laughs) Like, I want them to grow. I don't want them to be in class for two years and still can't lift a bar. But some people need that. You know, you're at that place where I just want to be told that I can write, that I'm okay, a space for me to write right now. And that's where I am, you know, working out-wise. But there's some people who are like, you know what, I've been doing this for so long. It's time. Right now is the time I need the gas mask. I need to be running up the street. This is my life, you know. But I'm somewhere in between. And I think recognizing what a writer wants or needs at that time is critical to their growth. The total process of getting to from when I started having that vision in the hallway to when it sold or when I thought it was a complete manuscript was seven years. But there were things that I wrote in the novel. For instance, one of the lines that I'm often quoted, people will say, I love this line, was the last thing that I wrote in the book while I was in Belgium on a residency. So I wouldn't have even known in year one to write that sentence I wrote in year seven that people are reading today. So there's a growth process and we have to trust that growth. There are experiences that you haven't had and you don't know why that that scene isn't working. It's because you don't know it yet. You know, this. I always tell people, because I have, I guess, a sort of spiritual slant to it, Um, that the book or the work already exists in the future. It already exists. And you can reach up and pluck pieces out of it. Sometimes you'll get it and you'll be like, oh, that's it. But it already exists whole and complete. And sometimes we want to finish it in, it's 2019 right now. We want to finish in 2019, but that thing that's about to happen that's just going to blow open that book isn't going to happen until June or July or August of that year or maybe next year. And you have to trust the process, whatever that process means to you. My revision process is actually interesting because I was like a regular writer who thought I had written the shit. Like draft one was the shit. I know there's a saying, you know, first drafts are shit. No, I was the opposite. My first draft is the shit. Like it was so great. I didn't know it was horrible. I didn't know. <laughs> so I was like, um, you are honored with the opportunity to read. <laughs> it was obnoxious. But you know what? Now that I teach, I realize that a lot of writers think that way. Like, what are you going to teach me? Why am I even here? I'm just in this class because, and I see it and I laugh. And I try to respond in a way that I wish somebody would have responded to me. Like, I'm here just to teach you the craft. You know, that's the best way. You know, I know you know how to do that, but let's talk about the craft of setting. Let's talk about voice and why you made this choice or why, you know, so you feel like you have something to learn. And so revision, and I regret all the teachers that I had that encounter with. You know, Robert Evers, I talk about him because he was the one teacher that made me think, okay, he has something to teach me. Okay, he has a book out. Okay, (laughs) you know, he has two books out or whatever. Um... And 
And I see me all the time now. And I feel sorry for me, right? Because they don't know any better. Um, but I still want to reach them because I know that there's potential. And every writer breaks. Every writer. There's a moment where you where you just are. Maybe it's for every artist. There's a moment where you feel like you feel inadequate all the time anyway. But there's a breaking point where you're like, I need somebody to help me do this. Um, and so it's better if you have those tools early on. So when you have that moment, you can sort of pull yourself out and keep going. Um, so my revision process, I was always revising over those seven years um, and trying to find instructors that I felt like I could respect because I was on that ego trip. <laughs> um, but accepting that everybody has something to teach you, everybody, even a second grader, you know, and teaching as part of the Penn Emerging Voices program, used to have to go and teach in the inner city. So I used to always teach in South L.A. Every student taught me something. I taught at 826 L.A., um, you know, and I'm like tutoring. And they were teaching me how to talk to people, how to talk to young people, how to how it's a conversation between a student and a and a um, teacher. Um, so it changed me. So writing changes you the way you see other people the way you see the world, because even if you're writing a villain in your story, you have to understand them. If you don't understand the Green Goblin, why he's come to that point, then that character is so flat and it's shit. So so for a moment, so even in like superhero movies, when the Green Goblin is saying the world is so messed up and Spider-Man's like, yeah, yeah, it is messed up. And then he says, and we really need to start again. And Spider-Man's like, yeah, we need to. It, the world is sick. We need to treat people better. He goes, yeah, so I'm going to drop a bomb right here in L.A. and just get rid of everyone. And from the chaos, I'll rise. And then you're like, no, no, that's not what I meant. But we have to find the humanity in each other in order to be able to tell a complete story. And even if we're writing nonfiction and we're talking about that mom that we hate or have a strained relationship with, there is a moment where you have to see her humanity and why she's made the decisions that she's made. A single mom raising five kids and trying to make it happen is a hard job, and maybe she couldn't love you like you wanted. You wanted her to be like the mom and dad across the street, and they seemed to have everything, but your mom had her, and she had to deal with the discrimination of the world at that time. And, she had to, and, and I'm saying this not just as a teacher, but that's my life understanding my mom's choices as a black woman my dad as a black man and you know and everything that that affects our relationships with each other and finding even if it's not forgiveness just a moment where you can understand so you could write a complex character I don't know where writing comes from where stories come from I just know that they come from all around you know from all around us they can come from experiences or just ideas. Some people will say, you know, the creative gods or whatever. But I know for me, I use everything, like every sense in my body, everything is part of that story. I feel like a nerve ending when I'm really in the flow. I'm like, don't come in here. Don't touch me. Don't touch me. I'm here. Um, and dreams are part of that. It informs because I feel like it's something else trying to tell me, look, can you t can you talk about this? Can you talk about can you? Do you see me in there? And people who write, especially novelists, they see their characters. And your characters come and visit you, and they talk to you, and they and they want to, you know. They said, no, don't say that about me. Don't say that. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to say this about you, girl. No. <laughs> so trying to do that and then 
then you have the other side where they're like, are you going to do sensitivity reads? And I'm just like, you know, because that's the new thing with YA novels. Like, you have to go to that group. And I was like, no, I'm going to do the fucking best, excuse my language, the best fucking job that I can do to represent people as whole and then and how it comes out. It comes out because I know how I would want to be treated. So when people send me stuff saying, I have this black character, can you read these pages? I'm like, no, did you do the homework? If, you, if you've blown it, you've blown it. You know, but don't, because there's so much as an artist that we have to balance. And at the end of the day, you have to tell the story that you want to tell, and it's not according to what other people say is safe or okay. And I think that's the push. The research that I did for Grace mainly started with figuring out you know, where in time I was, when in time. So I knew from that first vision that I had that I was in East Tallahassee, Alabama, where I'd spent days um, growing up. And I tried not to look at too many pictures, and I knew I didn't want to go back because I wanted it to be the Tallahassee of my memory. So you know how when we write, what we remember is way different than the actuality. And then still trying to respect people who live there now who might be offended or feel alienated. You're writing about this place. You're not even from here. So I was trying to do the research, but I know for the setting, I needed it to be as I remembered it or as I saw it in that vision, and then trying to find out as much information, looking at maps, but also reading the story of Tallahassee. There's a book, one book, there was one last one called The History of Tallahassee. So reading that, um, looking, doing Wikipedia to find things out, you know, I found out that there were no bananas in the South, and it made a difference because one of my characters is describing somebody's shoes, you know, being too long and is like dead banana peels, she says, but there's no bananas. So how would she know that? Or like lipstick, how do we apply that? It didn't come from, you know, like a stick, obviously, or it came from a pot. So knowing things like that and also reading diary entries to see how people spoke at that time. So that was important because when we create dialect, we're still creating another language. It didn't actually exist at that time and it doesn't exist now, you know, and it's hard to read living in you know, the 21st century, something that was written even in, you know, ye old English, like you can't say okay, you know, which is pretty common because they didn't have the word okay at that time. You know, that wasn't until later. So they were always saying all right, you know, or all right, or something like that. So I read a lot of books. I traveled a lot to the South. I walked the battlefields in Gettysburg just to get a feel for what it was like for warriors. Um, I call them warriors or soldiers who are fighting, you know, in Gettysburg. When you look at that field, you know, they're walking out into the equivalent of like a football field. There's no protection. There's no tree to hide behind. There's a few rocks, but you can get got pretty easily even behind those rocks. And when you read the stories of these boys, they're just boys, teenagers, and they're wearing capes and, you know, black capes, and they're holding them out in front of their face as if that cloth is protection from the bullets like they're Superman before they were Superman, and they're dying. And and so seeing that was just heartbreaking, and it informed Grace, for instance, because I couldn't understand or reconcile why slaves didn't leave when they were emancipated. Because, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation happened literally in the middle of the Civil War. So two years in, they're freed, and there's still two more years of war. But I'm like, why didn't they leave? So when I'm arguing with that editor who said, I want everything to revolve around the happy day of Emancipation Proclamation, even then I couldn't explain to her why I don't think that happened. And it wasn't in the history that I was researching. It was just a gut instinct. 
they didn't leave, and I had to figure out why that was. So that was one of the last revisions that I made for the for the book when I had to call my editor and say, no, it didn't happen like that. They didn't leave. They didn't just join sides or switch sides. They didn't go anywhere until the war was over, and it made a difference in the telling of that story. There was definitely challenges in writing grace and finding humanity because we live in such a binary world, everything, politics, sexuality, whatever we want to call it. Everything's either or. You're either bad or you're either good. You're either racist or you're not. And if you're racist, you can't actually love people and there can't be exceptions. There's no nuances. So it was important for me to show, even if I don't want to show them as this loving person, I need to show a nuance, like something that they cared about. Like even Hitler loved his dogs, right? He loved animals. Like how can you do that? And love your animals. Like, what kind of, you know, what kind of crazy? It is crazy. So I think everything is in the nuance, is to be able. So that was the challenge of writing Grace, some of the bad characters in Grace. And some people will say, oh, but a lot of the male characters were evil. She just didn't. She lived in a brothel, for one. So the kind of people that come there um, and that do that kind of, you know, thing. She was a slave and the men that she encountered were in that lifestyle. So it's hard to find. It's not a judgment on men, but a judgment on the men that would have been in her life at this time. Finding an agency, this was this was all bad because it was all part of my ego because I was on this ego. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness for anybody that I hurt in the process of trying to make up for it. So right before I had it even completed, one of the people in my MFA program said, I have an agent who's looking for work. I want to send her a link because I had the first chapter, my vision thing, published in Prague. And so the agent read it, and she reached out to me, and she said, I really like your manuscript. I know you're about to graduate. I'd like to see it. And I sent it to her, and then she became my agent. So I know it was – it was so it didn't help me thinking, well, maybe I need to work on this. You know, maybe I'm not as good as I thought. <laughs> like, yeah, it was terrible. Like, you shouldn't get success early or anything like that. But, I mean, it was a, it was a blessing for me because you can't skip any steps in life. Everybody has to go through A, A through Z. You're going to go through it. It's just when. So even if you get all these benefits in the beginning, you're going to feel it when you get to H, G, you know, H, K, all those. You could, it could wait till R, which is more devastating because you may be at the end of your life or the end of your career. You could be like Bill Cosby, like all that caught up to him at Y. And now he has to die knowing that. So all of that caught up to me, the feelings of inadequacy, the failure. And then and now you're in a public sphere where you say things you shouldn't say publicly, right? Because, you know, and then you pay for all that in a public way and not in a classroom. So you'll get through all that. I have faith that every writer with Nigo will feel it and you'll you'll change. It's just when does it hit you? So, you know, that's what I would encourage. If you're that person who thinks that your writer your writing is that way, you know, when do you want to learn these lessons? Do you want to humble yourself now, voluntarily, or do you want the world to do it for you? My agent and I, we really worked together well, but I'll say that also saying that I didn't know what to expect from an agent. Nobody can prepare you for what a relationship with an agent is like, or at least I wasn't prepared. Maybe they can. I try to help people. I don't know, because every relationship is different. So what happens after you finish your manuscript and your agent takes it on? A good agent, I think, 
will read over it and then you'll do more revision. She'll tell you what, you know, what's wrong with it. So it's another draft. So it's not complete yet. And then they shop it. So your agent is packaging it to get it ready in its best condition to go to a, a publishing house. So your editor will also, your acquiring editor will also edit it again. So everything before was just me and my agent working together saying, you know, is this scene doing what it wants to do, you know, whatever. So it's like working back and forth. And then you get your contracts after it's sold. And then you're saying, okay, let's, you know, do whatever. And at that point, I was so humbled by everything. That's when it started hitting, you know, because my book didn't sell. It didn't sell the first round. It didn't sell the second round. So your agent sends it out to a group of people. The the first one's closest to her or him. Second one, third round, it didn't sell. So now it's a year later. And talk about feeling like, oh, my God, I thought I was so great. Now I'm crap, right? Nobody wants to buy this book. And then my agent had the discussion with me saying, you know, we may not be able to sell this book, at which case, you know, I won't be your agent because your agent is usually for a book. It's not for your career. So we're going to try these last two small presses or three presses. And I'm just like, okay, I had given up at that point. I was just like, whatever. And I went to a reading here in L.A., And I remember they asked me to read and I'm like, what's the point? (laughs) And I get up to read and I read one of the the opening chapter of the book that inspired me. But before I started, I told them I'm going to put this book away. But this is the last reading that I'm going to give. And then it's going to go in a drawer. I said, but it was a fun ride because look what I got to do. I got to go to Yale. I got to travel with this book. I got to be in bread loaf. And because of what they thought they saw in the book and we were all wrong. And I was especially wrong um, after seven years of this. I said, so I'm going to make the, do this reading and then I'm going to put this book away. And then two days later, I get the call from my agent saying, it's sold. They want to talk to you. It was two. I got two offers on the book. Um, and I said, okay, I'll talk to them. But I still was not encouraged. I was like, I'll talk to them, but whatever. What are you going to tell? And then the first call was was the acquiring editor saying, I'm going to take, we want the book, but we want you to change it. So it all focuses around the Emancipation Proclamation, which is one day where slaves are free. I'm like, but that's not how it happened. I was like, okay, well, let me talk to this next person. I know Dan, you know, whatever, let's see what he has to say. And then I talked to him and I was like, yeah, that's, that's how it goes. Yeah, that is how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Do you really think we can do this? You know, it was, it was sort of like that. And that's where I went. And then the rest was sort of history. And the next thing you know, I'm in People Magazine, Time Magazine, New York Times. You know, there's my picture. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm in the paper. You know, but it's like, but it wasn't with that same attitude before. Like, of course, I'm in the paper. It was like, I'm just thankful that that happened. I'm just thankful. Thank you for giving me that review. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. Because it didn't have to happen like that, you know, and if it wasn't for, you know, my agent, my who had really given up, <laughs> you know, at that point. But Counterpoint and Dan, it wouldn't have become what it was because I had given up on her. And now Natasha Dion reads from Grace. I am dead. I died a nigga a long time ago. Before you were born, before your mother was born, before your grandmother. I was 17. Still am, I reckon, and everyone that was there that night is dead now, too, so it don't matter that I was a nigger or a slave. What matters is I had a daughter who had daughters 
and they had theirs. Family, I could have saved a whole lot of trouble by telling them the things that I know. But there are some stories that mothers never tell their daughters. Secret stories. Stories that would prove a mother was once young, done things with men she could never tell, in ways she could never tell, in places she could never. Private stories where love, any semblance of love, would lead a person like me to the place I was that night in 1848 when I died. For two days and two nights we've been running, me and the child inside me. Pain is trying to get me to stop, make me push away the pain, but I won't push. My pretty yellow dress is stained red and brown now, but not by the blood of the man I killed like they think. It's mine. The dark of night's been hiding my running for a while, muffling the sounds of my chest gushing in and out from my own hard breaths. Every few steps, the blue light of the moon sneaks past the treetops and strokes my face, urging me on, the only mercy I get in these hot Alabama woods. The devil's coming, and I have to keep moving for this baby, for me. But the pain's burning so bad now I can't hardly do nothing but fall against this old tree, hands slip sliding down its trunk, stinging. Barking from the hunting dogs is shooting across the air and bumping around inside me. I have to move faster, run like sister once told me to. I beg my belly, hold on to me, it ain't time. But this baby's got a plan. Her head's at my opening spot, burning hot, ripping my hips wide apart, carving a way out. I hold in my screams and bow over hard in the dirt knees first. A man's voice shouts, this way, she's up this way. I want to live. I want this baby to live. But she's betraying me. Every muscle in my body slamming shut, so I push. She's tearing through me, I push. I don't want to, but I push. Screaming mute deep inside myself, pushing so hard but hollering so low so they can't hear me. A wave of warm water pours out of me carrying my joy and deep sorrow. Before God and this oak tree she come, and she don't cry. I guess she want us to live too. I move her into the triangle of moonlight that sets my arm aglow, and she see me, and I see in her the good part of love. The weight of them push me over these dogs, clawing and biting at my back, but the pain ain't gonna make me give her up to them. I gotta protect her, get up, keep running. I feel my legs so I bend them. I feel them firm on the ground so I push up. I hold her close with one arm and pull up with the other. I can make it. I tell myself again how to run, counting my steps. One, two, one, two, one, two. A spark of light. A loud pop, nothing. My last thought is to not fall on my baby. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.